What I think we need is a great movie that takes place at, you know, like a manufacturing company, like a Marvel movie or something like that, that we can get, like, Deadpool running through a modern factory or something like that, and everybody is like, oh, wait, we get a glimpse of something that's interesting. What is that? What's going on there? I don't know. What do you think about that idea? That sounds like a great role for Tony Stark, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. A nice Iron Man kind of theme there. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products, and of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but you know, we're not going to talk about that today. Today, we're going to be talking with Chad Moutre, the chief economist of the National Association of Manufacturers. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. No, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I know a lot of our listeners have been, you know, looking at their own crystal balls and trying to figure out what's going on in the future. So it's amazing to get a real life economist to talk with us about stuff. But, you know, before we kind of jump into that, maybe just tell us a little bit about the NAM, as it's called, and kind of what your mission is. The National Association of Manufacturers was founded in 1895, making us fairly old, right, in Cincinnati. And so it makes it the the oldest trade association dedicated to manufacturers. But I think the bigger deal is we have 14,000 members, every state manufacturing association, as well as about 200 or so vertical associations. And so people join the NAM for our advocacy, but there also are a lot of other aspects there, workforce. Certainly AI is a big topic, Adam, that a lot of our members are, are engaged in and trying to make sure that we are competitive for the future, right? So obviously I'm chief economist, but uh, there's a lot of other aspects there to the NAM that I think folks join us for. Yeah, I think I read on the website there's over 250,000 manufacturers in the United States alone. Is That's crazy large number, right? That is true. And 90% of manufacturers are, are small, small and medium-sized manufacturers. At least that's according to our membership. Certainly in that, in that realm of small businesses is certainly important for us, even though most people think of the larger larger manufacturers when they think of manufacturing. Yeah, no, I'm here in the Boston area. And of course, General Electric somehow has moved its headquarters here a number of years ago. So I think when people think manufacturing, they think tremendous factories, big plants, and, and so on. But a lot of them are much more modestly sized. Yeah, the reality is General Electric, which is a member, uh, and a lot of other uh, companies use a lot of small businesses as suppliers, right? And so there's a lot of innovation that happens amongst some of those small and medium-sized companies, uh, but also the very important parts of the supply chain. What's been really interesting for me in talking with a lot of manufacturers and distributors is just how blurred the line is between the two of them sometimes. A lot of our manufacturing customers, they do manufacture things, but they're mostly assembling things. And then we have other people who are like pouring metal and breaking it down into components. So it's, it's such a big range of companies. Well, when you think about the larger multiplier effect, right, I'll use an economics phrase there, right, it really shows you just how important manufacturing is when you include the supply chain, all of the various parts of the of the overall process, as well as all of the communities that are so important to manufacturing. And so that's why manufacturing continues to be really such a central conversation here in Washington and everywhere, right? Is that everyone loves 
manufacturing and thinks we should make more here, right? So I think that's a pretty bipartisan kind of appeal that's out there. It's always coming up during the political campaigns, right, about that. It, it almost makes you feel like it's a smaller part of the economy, but it's really not. It's actually a, a very large part of the U.S. economy. Yeah, there's this sense that we don't make anything in America anymore, and that's just not true at all. I mean, the, the reality is we make more than we ever have, right? If you look at overall output, uh, we have 13 million workers in manufacturing, so that's the most since 2008. The challenge here is that the pie's gotten bigger, right? So there are other pockets of the economy that also have gotten big. But we still are here. We're making more and selling more. And and I think that's kind of a myth that certainly can be disproved when you look at the real data. Right. Well, that's the trick, right, to get people to actually look at the data, because sometimes they just, uh, you know, only read the headlines. So, yeah. That's true. Now, you're the chief economist of the NAM. And so, first of all, I know you didn't have to, like, beat up any other economist to get that title. You know, tell us a little bit about the work that you do for the organization. The short word here is I'm a talking head, right? So anytime any number comes out, uh, I'm commenting on, you know, what that means for manufacturers, what that means for the overall economic outlook, talking to CEOs and other members that we have in terms of the manufacturing community, but also speaking to the press and giving lots of speeches, right? So, and, and doing podcasts like this one, which are pretty exciting. But the other aspect of that is a lot of research. We're going to be releasing a study next week. We're releasing stuff all the time, either to help move the needle in terms of policy or uh, in terms of thought leadership, especially in the workforce space. Uh, in addition to being chief economist at the NAM, I straddle over into the Manufacturing Institute. And so we're doing a lot of research on workforce topics there. I imagine a lot of this research is survey data. Is that how you get a lot of insights? Some of it is survey data. We also uh, do a lot of, quite frankly, we do a lot of regressions and, uh, as well as I do a lot of interviews with manufacturers. Uh, I think it's important for us to get insights. And as chief economist, I actually think it's important to get outside the beltway as frequently as possible to hear what's really happening in the economy. So if I'm giving a you know press quote, I'm actually giving it from real insights. And so uh, there's a lot of a little bit of that. We also work with a lot of consulting firms and a lot of other groups that help do some kind of original research for us. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, I know from talking to a lot of manufacturers that seem to be a bunch of macro trends, in my view, that are going on right now. And I know one of them that's on everybody's mind is sort of the idea of having more production locally. The pandemic kind of exposed kind of far-flung supply chains for people, and people are looking for a little bit more consistency, uh, at least the people I'm talking to. Is, is that kind of what you're seeing in your re research as well? There were some pretty tremendous supply chain bottlenecks, as you remember, right? We all couldn't find toilet paper and a bunch of other things, right, during the pandemic. And the reality is freight costs went up pretty significantly. You had some pretty significant issues at the ports and elsewhere, and I think it really brought home not just the importance of the supply chain, but it also brought home the fact that, uh, you know, maybe maybe it might make sense to make more in North America or in the U.S. or, as you say, in your local community and not have to deal with some of those big bottlenecks. The fact is we're seeing a lot more investment in the U.S. today, right? We had a record level of foreign direct investment last year, and we're seeing what, what I call the hockey stick, right? If you see the graph of manufacturing construction, uh, and this this is a number that obviously you hear quite a bit in Washington, but construction activity in manufacturing is up a whopping 70% over the last 12 months, hitting new record highs, largely because of the Chips and Science Act, as well as, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act had some components in it for battery production and EVs and, and other energy components. 
I also think it just simply is a sign that reshoring is, is trendy, and you're seeing a lot more folks looking at the U.S. differently. And that has major ramifications, I think, not just for manufacturing, but also for the employment market. Oh, yeah. right? You know, Goldman Sachs estimates that that huge hockey stick of construction is going to lead to another 250,000 manufacturing workers over the next couple of years. Right? Wow. And so I wonder where we're going to find them all from. That's, that's a whole other topic. Let's, let, let's that's just, where you were. That's where I was going, Adam, yeah. is, is that we're, we already are in a tight labor market. And so it just makes that overall competition for talent that much tougher. Yeah, there's so much going on in there. Let's just kind of dig in on a couple of the items to begin with. So I'm super curious about this relationship between construction and manufacturing, though. You know, is that one dollar of construction is generating a certain number of dollars of manufacturing? That's just the way the world works. So we put out a study, Adam, called Building to Win. You can go on the NAM website and find it. It really puts that linkage out there, right? I mean, the reality is if you're building a road or bridge or port or putting out infrastructure, you're probably using equipment that was manufactured by one of our members, right? And so there is a huge connection there and that a lot of our members really benefit from the sale of construction equipment as well as the materials that are used for it. That certainly has a pretty tremendous multiplier effect, right? Yeah. The other aspect of that is all those manufacturing construction projects that I just mentioned, right? They're just putting shovels in the ground, right? Those are going to be at some point but you know, build actual factories with equipment in it and of other things. And so all of that also creates additional opportunities and jobs. So, so you said that something was up 70%. And I'm sorry that I, it was just such a big number. It kind of flushed out of this my mind what that was. manufacturing was. construction. So this is actual shovels in the ground to build new factories wow. or, or warehouses or whatever it might be. Again, this, this is just a pretty astonishing number that you are seeing more investment in the U.S. and manufacturing. Who would have envisioned this happening so quickly? And in my view, it's a bit of an, of an inflection point for manufacturing. Also pushing back against the notion that we don't make things in the U.S. is that we're making a lot more and you're seeing a pretty rapid uptick in it. Yeah. So how does that work from the shovels in the ground to when, you know, the manufacturing output starts increasing? Is that at 18 months? Is it five year? It's certainly not a short term it's not an immediate thing. That's why I think as you move into 2024 and 2025, you'll start seeing some of that taking place. Flashback a year or so, there was a shortage of semiconductors, right? right. All right. And so, you know, they've got to build foundries, they've got to build factories. And so all of that, as you move into the next couple of years, you'll actually start seeing some output coming out of those factories. And they're looking for workers right now to fill those roles. I saw a statistic the other day that basically said that even if everybody who is unemployed took, you know, manufacturing jobs, we would still have a gap in the number of people we need to hire. Yeah, the reality is we, we did a study with Deloitte. Uh, actually, we're getting ready to update it. But we needed to identify another 2 million workers between now and 2030 to be able to fill all the jobs that we need, keeping in mind that we have a lot of baby boomers and eventually those of us in Gen X are going to retire. We need a replacement, right, for you know younger workers to fill some of those roles. And so we're going to need to identify another 2 million people. That and the, and the reality is right now we have 616,000 manufacturing job openings, right? So uh, we already are in, in an environment where the number one issue amongst manufacturers, small, medium, and large, is the inability to attract and retain talent. Now, I know it's not an economic question, but have you seen any strategies or approaches that companies are using to break through that talent barrier? This is what the Manufacturing Institute does, actually. A large part of that is we need to identify new 
new groups of folks. You know, we can't just keep thinking we're going to be able to recruit the same old way, right? The reality is the labor market is tight. Everyone is looking for workers. And so we have to find ways to differentiate ourselves from other other folks who are working and looking for the same people, right? And what I like to think is we're, we're competing with non-traditional players, right? We're competing with the service sector, fast food workers, Amazon, other companies, right, are also looking for some of these same workers. And so we've got to make sure we stress that your manufacturing is a cool job, right? It's highly technical, right? And so it's not non-skilled work anymore, right? It's a lot of technology and automation. And so we need really smart, sophisticated people. It's a pathway to a career. So you know, talk about culture, talk about all those other things that helps differentiate us from some of those other players. But the other part of it is we've got to go out and we've got to recruit more women into manufacturing. We have a nice program to do that. We're trying to encourage more military veterans to move into manufacturing. It's a nice, really transferable skills that can really play well in manufacturing. We've got to look differently at second chance employees and other groups, right? And and diversity and inclusion. So there are a lot of different ways that we need to really widen the net in terms of the folks that we're recruiting. The Manufacturing Institute also does Manufacturing Day every year. So the first Friday in October is, is a day which is not limited to that day, but where we encourage our members to open up their doors and try to show young folks and their parents and guidance counselors how cool manufacturing can be. So yeah, uh, I think the short answer there, Adam, is we just got to think differently. Yeah, I think that people definitely have misperceptions about manufacturing jobs. You know, I was talking with a young person the other day who was interested in trying to figure out what she should do for her career. And we went to the website of a manufacturing company. There's a lot of very, like, operationally interesting jobs, balancing relationships with suppliers and some really interesting stuff that has nothing to do with conveyor belts and stuff like that, which is where I think people's minds go to, you know. There are these perceptions out there that are quite outdated right now. Right. And it's, it's not your grandfather's manufacturing anymore. Right. If you tour a manufacturing facility, which obviously that's the goal of Manufacturing Day, uh, you see that there's a lot of automation. There's robots. There's a lot of roles there that are much different than I think people think of when they're thinking of manufacturing. You know, I've got this idea. You can tell me if you think this is crazy or not. But what I think we need is a great movie that takes place at, you know, like a manufacturing company, like a Marvel movie or something like that, that we can get like Deadpool running through a modern factory or something like that. And everybody is like, oh, wait, we get a glimpse of something that's interesting. What is that? What's going on there? I don't know. What do you think about that idea? That sounds like a great role for Tony Stark, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. A nice Iron Man kind of theme there. All of that, like, AI and moving stuff. But the problem with Tony Stark is he just does everything himself. You know, like, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what how he does it. Like, he just builds everything himself. It's crazy. Because it really does take a team to do all of this stuff in reality, right? And you got to get past the arrogance, too. But that's, that's, well, that's, a, different, yeah, that's exactly. a different story. But I guess if you were able to make an Iron Man suit on your own in the middle of Afghanistan or wherever the heck he was, then you can probably be a little bit arrogant. Proof that innovation can be cool, right, is what that says. I guess so. So talking about Tony Stark and manufacturing, you know, obviously we're very focused on AI in manufacturing, but is this a trend that you're seeing kind of across the industry? Obviously, I don't have to say this to you, Adam, you know it, but everyone is going to be touched by AI at some point, right? You know, manufacturers have doubled down on just a whole host of disruptive technologies over the last couple of years, whether that's connected technologies or Internet of Things or... Obviously, AI is kind of the latest. And I think, you know, the reality is manufacturers have to continue to not just innovate, 
but adopt some of these new technologies to stay competitive, to innovate differently, and hopefully make the worker workforce more productive, right? And I think that's the bottom line is, especially in, in a world where labor is tight, there is a, such a major shortage of labor, technology can be the solution for a lot of folks. That doesn't mean that anyone's getting fired because of it. You know, the robots are not taking your jobs away. But it does mean in the conversations that I have with a lot of manufacturing firms that maybe that role might change and a robot is doing it or automation is doing it. But that person who used to do that is now doing something else in the factory. And so that requires a lot more upskilling and training and be, to be able to use augmented reality or whatever else is happening in, on the shop floor. Yeah, no, I know there's a lot of things that people do today that they prefer the robots did. So I think that could definitely be a nice addition. We, we were talking with a guest who's in the uh, machine vision space before and how, you know, identifying, you know, quality issues or, you know, all kinds of different things can be taken care of with AI. It's super exciting. It definitely. And certainly improves quality. As you know, there are other roles that we never really wanted to do in the first place. And certainly a robot can can do those and frees us up to do other tasks on the shop floor. Definitely. Now, you, you had mentioned some of the supply chain snafus a little bit earlier, and I'm just curious from your perspective, have we kind of worked our way through that or are they still ongoing? What's, what's your take? So we still hear about supply chain issues from our members. It's not the, the issue that it was a year ago, but there are still these one-off issues where you're trying to get an electronic component and you got to wait 12, 13, 14 months for it, right? Or... There's some raw material, right, that's holding things up. And so it's still an issue, just not the issue that it was earlier. Now, the reality is the economy has slowed around the globe, and that has helped some of that. But there still are some one-off supply chain issues. The other kind of comment that I'll make about that is that I think manufacturers also have used that experience to become smarter about using data. And that also has kind of accelerated a smart factory notion that, Procurement is much smarter than it was before because we've used ways around some of these supply chain challenges to maybe identify another possible vendor or maybe even just completely rethink the supply chain overall. So resilience has become the buzzword as well, right, of how can we make sure if this were to ever happen again, we won't be caught in alerts the way we were this time. Yeah, I know talking with a lot of people, I feel like inventory levels are up. People are willing to carry more on their balance That's sheets. Right. We actually had one guest on the podcast saying that they felt like that was a bit of a competitive advantage. They could use their financial position to have a bigger inventory and keep things in stock. So when customers needed things, they were always available for them. And that's especially true of small and medium-sized manufacturers. The last thing you want to do is have to shut down production. That costs lots of money. Now, pushing back against that is the fact that interest rates have gone up a lot, as you know, in the last few months. And so that certainly increases your borrowing costs for some manufacturers tell me that they had to build a whole new factory or a new, new warehouse, right? That borrowing cost is pretty significant and I suspect might push back a little bit on carrying too much inventory on hand. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that I wonder about. The larger, the GEs of the world, the publicly traded manufacturing companies, are they under more financial pressure to shareholders in a way than the smaller guys who are more family owned, you know, and willing to take a cut in profit for sustainability? Well, the bigger you are, obviously, you have a lot more scale and you have a lot more opportunity, right? I used to be chief economist at the Small Business Administration. So, I mean, the reality is the smaller you are, the scale of being able to do some of these things, you have a lot fewer options, right? You have a lot fewer options for availability of capital, uh, as well as a lot fewer resources to be able to do some of these things. And so 
I think the small and medium size manufacturers are probably more at a disadvantage there, especially your smallest manufacturers. Yep. You know, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a little bit about 2024 and what's in, in your view going to happen. And I know we're, we're not going to hold you to it, we promise. But in your view, from a general and then from a manufacturing perspective, how do you think the year is shaping up for us? Well, as you know, the, the data have been pretty mixed. Even in manufacturing, there are a lot of signs of challenges. You don't have to look very far to see them, right? But there's also all this investment that's happening. So you have kind of this on the one hand, on the other hand, notion that you would expect to hear from an economist. I have long actually been in the soft landing camp and has continued to be in the soft landing camp. We still see quite a bit of resilience in the U.S. economy. While consumer confidence is down, people are still spending money. Uh, we're going to get a new reading for a third quarter GDP that's going to be really robust in the next week. And it's because people still went out and spent money, right? They went to Taylor Swift concerts, they went on vacation, they went to restaurants and bars. And so you're going to see a lot of spending, especially on services, and that's helping prop up the economy. Now, as you move into 2024, that's going to slow a little bit. And part of that is the fact that interest rates have really shot up in the last month. That's providing a little bit of sticker shock for housing, right? Mortgage rates are hitting close to 8%, where you were seeing some recovering in housing over the summer. That's starting to dissipate a bit. You're going to see things slow a little bit in terms of overall pricing pressures and other things. And so I see a slowing. I do think we're going to have a soft landing. But if we're going to have a recession, I think it's going to be largely in the first half of the year. I actually see us kind of bouncing out of that by this time next year. And so my official forecast is 2.4% growth this year and about 1.6% growth next year. But much of that is coming from the rebound you see at the end of next year. But there's also a lot of downside risks there, which I could tick off all of them and it would just depress you. So I Yeah, no, I, I see a lot of them just in the news for sure. But tell me, do you feel like any particular sectors in manufacturing are more resilient than others? Is it consumer goods? Is it industrials? How do you look at that? Well, anything that's related to infrastructure or transportation has tended to fare pretty well. So motor vehicles, aerospace, machinery to a certain extent, go back to my construction conversation earlier what I call core capital goods, right? Companies are still investing in themselves. They're investing in new technologies. And so those have tended to fare fairly well. At the bottom end of that spectrum, you're seeing some weakness in furniture. You're seeing some weakness in some of paper and textiles and things along those lines. If we were to fall into a recession, obviously some of those consumer goods might get hit, depending on what consumer goods you're talking about. And obviously, motor vehicles are pretty cyclical. And so those are things to watch. I didn't say this earlier, but I, as you move into 2024, to my, in my view, what really is the key to getting a soft landing is the labor market. As long as the unemployment rate doesn't shoot up too much, that's the key number to watch. If it gets to four and a half, we've likely slipped into recession. Yeah. Well, it's super hard to figure out, of course. I mean, it just feels like with so many jobs open, it's going to be hard to do that. But who knows what's going on? This is a very unique time when, you know, we've never had a recession and full employment at the same time. And we're not far from full employment right now. And so that makes a bit of a weirdness to the overall forecasting, right? And that there's a lot of folks saying that a recession is inevitable, and yet we're at 3% unemployment, right? So 3.8%. Yeah. So it's a pretty large disconnect there. 
I think it'll be really interesting a few years from now when we look back, because I feel like there's a lot of people who are saying that some of the normal assumptions that we made about the way the economy work has kind of changed, like the relationship between recessions and unemployment, interest rates and how it affects unemployment just seems to be all discalibrated at this point. Well, the yield curve has been kind of upside down for the last year, and yet we haven't had a recession, right? And so there's a lot of talk about maybe is this time different, right? And I just said to you that I'm in the soft landing camp, so I guess I'm saying it might be. We'll see, I guess. Now, I've got one more question for you about 2024, and th this is just from like a lay person's perspective. I feel like a lot of business owners that I'm talking to look at the upcoming presidential election and feel like that's a big impact on the economy, that somehow the federal government always tries to juice up the economy before the election. Is that just like a popular wisdom kind of thing? Not really true? Or is that a thing? Well, that's definitely a thing. Although, as you know, Washington is kind of crazy right now, right? We're certainly... <laughs> Moving into a very interesting election cycle, I guess I'll leave it there, right? As we're recording this, we still don't have a House speaker, right? So there's clearly a lot of dysfunction as well as craziness of next year's election. You know, the reality is we'll see how it plays out, right? So it could be another Trump versus Biden election. And, and I think from our perspective, what we're going to be continuing to look at is, you know, we're seeing a lot of regulations coming out of Washington right now, kind of in the lead up to that election. You know, we're, we're running an enormous debt, which is something that could be a major topic of election, although who knows, it never really is a major topic, but it could and should be. And the other aspect of it is all of those tax cuts we got in 2017 are going to expire as you move into 2025. And so whoever wins the White House and Congress uh, next year will have a pretty major hand in shaping what tax policy will look like for the next decade. And so... That's how we would like to frame the election. We'll see how it ends up getting framed as the overall election shapes up. But that's how we would like to see it be focused on. Well, stay tuned, I guess, as they say, and we'll, we'll learn all the answers to that soon, I guess. In a year, we'll know. Not that we'll be able to do anything about it at that point. But is there any advice? When you talk to owners of manufacturing companies, what are you counseling them looking forward to 2024? Well, I think it's always important, you know, keep in mind, manufacturers are very long focused. They're already thinking not just about 2024, but 2025 and 2026. And so my advice is continue to invest and make decisions that are going to allow you to come out on the other side of whatever we're in right now and be able to capitalize on that. I actually am bullish about the future. I think manufacturers have been doing that. I'm bullish about productivity growth moving forward. And so investments in things like AI and these other technologies, I think will certainly bode well for us moving forward. That was a commercial Great. for you, Adam, I think. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Well, Chad, really, really appreciate your coming on the podcast. Really great to get your views, not only about 2024, but about just how all of this kind of stuff works and the relationship between different things in the economy. Super fascinating. So really, really appreciate your coming on the show. Well, thank you. So as a reminder to our listeners, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at spiro.ai backslash podcast. Be sure to subscribe you know, maybe give us a good rating. I don't know, Chad, do you think people should give us a good rating? Of course. Of course. The highest possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us a six out of five, <laughs> please. So really appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode. Yeah.